Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. You know what I notice sometimes is sometimes that offering song gets a clap and sometimes it doesn't. And I'm never, I can never really figure out what makes you start to clap, Mark. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I mean, it's always good. Sometimes you give it up, sometimes you don't. All right, here we go. Let's go. Genesis chapter 23. Buckle up. We are going to move through chapter 23 quickly. And then chapter 24, which is the longest chapter in Genesis. And we're going to hit warp speed, okay? These two chapters form a transition between what I think is probably the high point, the most important chapter in Genesis, Genesis 22, which Wayne so, so aptly preached on last week. If you missed that, you can find the CDs on the information desk, or you can find it on our website, the MP3. You download that. Excellent message. And this is a transition. We're looking at the end of Abraham's life. He, God has fulfilled his promise And he's given him this son, and he's tested Abraham, and Abraham did not withhold his only son. And of course, as Wayne explained, all of that is ultimately pointing to Jesus and how God sacrifices his own son on the same mountain hundreds of years later on the cross. And and it becomes a picture of the gospel in Genesis 22. And now, 23 and 24 are a, a bridge, a transition from the life of Abraham to the life of Isaac and then Jacob and Joseph. And so we see this transition in God's redemptive uh, story here. And so I've got two points, really, which are just the two, I think, themes of each of these chapters. I'm going to give it to you right up off the bat. Uh, the two themes are first, Abraham's hope, and then God's quiet providence. So I think chapter 23, which we're going to move through very quickly, is I think about Abraham's ultimate hope. And then chapter 24 is about God's quiet providence in choosing a bride for the promised son Isaac, Rebecca. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. Lord, as we, as we look at your word, as we handle a large portion of scripture today, pray that you'd help, us, help me stay on point and serve these people well. Ultimately, Lord, this narrative about the burying of a wife and the choosing of a bride for a son are not just meant to be tales of morality or principles for good living, but it ultimately is meant to point towards your redemptive plan in Christ and Jesus' work on the cross. So help us see that. I pray, Lord, for the Christians in this room that they would be stirred they would see Jesus more clearly, see your work in their lives more clearly. I pray for unbelievers that are in this room, and certainly there are some in a room this size with this many people. We pray, God, that you would grant them faith and repentance by your sovereign mercy, not because they are good, but because you are good and merciful, that you would give them a new heart so that they can have faith in Jesus and what he has done on the cross to bear your punishment for their sin. And he rose again in victory over the consequences of sin and death. Lord, give them new life in Jesus, even today. And Lord, now with your Holy Spirit, the same 
Holy Spirit that inspired Moses to write these words, would you move through this room like a, a rushing wind and lift our eyes to see Christ crucified and glorified and reigning over all things. And may you encourage your people and draw unbelievers to yourself for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's, let's read a little bit in, in chapter 23. So what's going on here is we're at the end of Abraham and Sarah's life. In just a couple chapters, Abraham is going to pass away as well. And we're going to read a few verses and look at what's happening with Abraham. What's happening in chapter 23 is Abraham, after Sarah's death, is purchasing a burial plot for her burial. And the significant thing about it is he is, unlike what would have been customary in that day, he's not going back to his homeland to purchase a plot, which is what they would have done. If you remember in Genesis 11 and 12, Haran was where he was from, but God called him away from that place to go to the land that he would show him and give him, the Canaan land, which is where they are now. They're not possessing it. They're not in charge. They're still foreigners in that land. But Abraham is a sojourner in the land that God has given him. And rather than, which would have been customary, going back home and buying a burial plot in his ancestral grounds, he is, as a sojourner, not yet fully possessing the land that God has promised him, is now bargaining with these uh, foreigners in the land that God has given him for land to purchase for Sarah's, for Sarah's burial. So verse 1 says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So let's pause there. This is significant, and we're going to skip down to the end in just a moment. Is that remember, this is the land, the land of Canaan, that God promised Abraham years ago in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13, and he repeats it in several other points where God is promising this land as an eternal possession for Abraham and all of his offspring. And so what's significant here is Abraham is in the land, but he's not yet possessing it. He is, he is still a sojourner in the land that God has promised him. And Sarah has died, and in, in just a little bit, in a couple chapters, Abraham is going to die, and yet they're not yet possessing the land that God has promised them. So we're going to get to how that works out in just a second. And so then verses 5 through 16, we won't take the time to read, but it's just an account of Abraham's negotiations financially and legally for the buying of this burial plot, which ultimately is granted to him for actually a pretty high cost. But Abraham, I think, is understanding the promises of God that even though it's not full, even though the promise is not fully realized, he is looking forward even after his death and Sarah's death to the fulfillment of God's promise and he's purchasing this burial plot in the land that God has promised to him and his wife and all of their offspring. So verse 17 says, so the field of Ephron in Machpelah 
which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried, his, buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Okay, so why would the Holy Spirit inspire Moses, years later after this happened, to include this seemingly unimportant detail about where Sarah was buried and where Abraham's hope was in burying her there in that land that God had promised that he would possess, but he's realizing now that he's at the end of his life and Sarah's died and ultimately they will not possess it in this life. I think that God put this chapter and this account in the Bible to show us that the promises that he made to Abraham about the land and his inheritance, we've seen the son promise be fulfilled. We read about that last week. Isaac came, he's born, he's here now. And in just a moment, we're going to read about how God is going to continue his covenantal love to Abraham's line by choosing Isaac for Isaac a bride. But we're wondering, what about this land that God has given Abraham that he said he would possess and all of his descendants after him? Ultimately, I think that what this chapter is telling us is that Abraham, at the end of his life, began to understand and believe that the promises of God extended and ultimately were fully realized not in this life. The promises of God extend beyond that. The promises of God to Abraham and Sarah would not be exhausted in this lifetime. And I think that the reason chapter 23, primarily in the Bible, is to show us that to some degree, every believer, every follower of God, every Christian will die having not experienced the vast majority of what God promises. And friends, we are not missing out on anything because ultimately what chapter 23 is telling us is that we were not created to just enjoy these 80 or 90 years or in Abraham's case and Sarah's case, 127. That when God promises us something, it's not just for the here and now, but it's actually pointing towards eternity when time goes on forever and ever. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews, how he looks back on this. Always let the New Testament help you interpret what's going on in the Old Testament, okay? All, because the New Testament, listen, the, the, the Bible writers of the New Testament are better Old Testament scholars than any, any liberal cat teaching in some liberal ceremony, or in some liberal seminary. The, the New Testament is going to help us interpret the Old Testament. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says about what's going on here. Hebrews 11 starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So he's called out of Haran to Canaan. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So even though God had promised him this land, he was still in his earthly life, in a real sense, a foreigner there. Verse 10, For he was looking forward 
to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham, as he grew in faith, began to understand that ultimately God wasn't promising him a little plot of dirt in Palestine for a hundred years, but ultimately this was pointing towards the realization of the true inheritance, the true land, which is heaven, the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, verse 11, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, meaning these Old Testament believers, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16, listen to this. But as it is, they, meaning these Old Testament believers in God, Abraham and those that followed him that were true believers, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, why is chapter 23 in the Bible? Why is it significant? Because it is teaching us that Abraham grew in his faith and understanding of what God was ultimately promising him. He wasn't just promising him physical descendants and a physical plot of land, but all of those physical promises were ultimately meant to point towards the eternal reality of eternity with Christ for, forever and ever. And the same is true for us, friends. Abraham's hope was not in his physical life realizing all that God has promised, but his hope was in the life to come. So the, I think the clear question of application is, where, where is our hope, right? Where is our hope? Where are we putting our affections and our, and our hope? Are we completely destroyed and is our faith shaken when something that we think we deserve or that God has promised us is not fully realized in this life? Abraham is this beautiful example of, of that ultimately life is, in fact, we, we should just change our vocabulary. We shouldn't call death the afterlife. We should call it the, the beginning of true life. And Abraham at the end of his life realize that. Okay, so that's Abraham's hope. Let's get into the longest chapter in Genesis, chapter 24. And what's going on here is, is as we've seen over these last 10 chapters in Genesis, we've seen these, this miraculous, clear, stunning movements of God's power, whether it is, you know, raining down fire and sulfur on a city that was disobedient to him in Sodom and Gomorrah, whether it was God giving Abraham clear, decisive military victory and rescuing Lot earlier on, or whether it was causing a lady 90-something years old to conceive a child. We, we see God's clear and obvious, stunning, striking power and providence over the events of Abraham's life. But in chapter 24, we're going to see God's quiet behind-the-scenes arranging of things 
to continue his steadfast love to Abraham and his family in the choosing of a bride for, for Isaac, his son. This is a beautiful story, a romantic story. And let me just say, young men that are looking for a wife, it is not a guide on how to go about finding somebody to marry you. It's in the Bible, but sometimes scripture in the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive, meaning it's a description of what happened, not necessarily the way you should go about it. Okay, so with that, let's read in chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and in the next chapter we're going to see him passing away. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, who is very likely Eleazar, his most trusted servant, who, by the way, stood to be the one who inherited all of Abraham's, you know, inheritance, should Abraham not have a son. If you remember when God was talking to Abraham and promising him, he said, I don't have an heir, and Eleazar is going to be my, my lead servant. If, if I don't have any children, then he will be the one. So this, that makes this servant's obedience and faithfulness to Abraham really all the more commendable, because if this Isaac wouldn't have come along, he would have been the one to inherit everything that Abraham had. So, verse 2, and Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Okay, a couple things. I realize that sounds strange to us. Don't be freaked out by Eleazar putting his hand under Abraham's side. That was just a custom. We would you know, shake hands or sign a contract or whatever. That's just the way they did it. And so Abraham is asking Eleazar to commit to him to go find a wife for his son Isaac And he's telling him to go back to his people and to not find a wife for for Isaac amongst the the people, the, the Hittites, the Canaanites of the land. So what's going on here? Number one, let's just handle this right off the bat. Friends, this is not the Bible speaking against interracial marriage. Okay, several times, many times, in fact, throughout the Old Testament, there will be admonitions about God's people not intermarrying with foreigners. But what's going on there is that God is not wanting them to give themselves over to the idolatrous false gods of these other cultures. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. In fact, we see in the genealogy of Jesus several several Gentile women that God grafted in, that God commends in the book of Matthew. So friends, this is not an Old Testament admonition against interracial marriage. In fact, we read in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. No friends, what's going on here is not God saying, don't marry that girl from another tribe because I don't like their skin color or their culture. He's saying, stay within your people who, who worship me and don't intermingle with people of foreign gods. And so what God is saying there, which he would be definitely still be saying to every person in this room, is that do not marry a non-Christian. In fact, Paul says that in Corinthians. Don't unequally yoke yourself to an unbeliever. And you need to hear that. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a young person, and you are giving your heart over, you are dating somebody that is not a believer, dear one, as your brother in Christ, I exhort you to turn 
from yoking yourself to an unbeliever. Love that person, witness to them, befriend them, but do not give your heart to somebody who is not trusting in Christ. It is unbelievably spiritually dangerous. Don't do it. Stop and trust that God will provide for you a Christian. I think that's a, a super important thing. So let me just, let me just say as, as directly as I can that this is not an admonition against interracial marriage. In fact, I would say that interracial marriage between Christians can actually be a beautiful commendation of the gospel. So, even more pointedly and personally, I pray and hope that my children grow up to marry Christians. And if the Christian that they married was of another ethnicity, I would be thrilled, so long as they're a Christian. And if my children grew up to marry someone of the same ethnicity who's not a Christian, I would be deeply troubled, deeply troubled, just to kind of put that, put that out there. So we see Abraham giving this, this uh, mission to his servant Eleazar. And I think we just see the clear leadership of a good father. Just think about Abraham. I mean, we, we, we've, been, we've, been, we've been harsh on Abraham a little bit for these past couple chapters, right? I mean, he's, he's twice lying about his wife being a sister. He's had, some, he's had some valleys, you know, in these past 10 chapters. Haven't we been getting on him a little bit? But we've just seen God's grace to him. But we see Abraham's growth here at the end of his life. We see him leading well and preparing for the future of Isaac. Fathers, this is a great example of masculine fatherly leadership. He didn't sit back and wait for God to just make everything happen. But he is preparing the way for Isaac's future and was a father who was leading his family. Dads, be involved in the hearts and lives and the dating lives of your teenagers and your young adults and and come around them. And if you're maybe less than pleased with their choice of a boyfriend or girlfriend or maybe a potential spouse, don't, don't just in anger disassociate yourself with it, but, but draw near and lead and instruct and encourage and shepherd. And Abraham is a wonderful example of that. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 5, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. I mean, do you just see the clear development of the conviction and strength of Abraham? This is the same dude who just a few chapters ago, granted it was a couple decades ago, was selling out his wife as his sister because he was scared. Now, at the end of his life, just probably a short time before he dies, he is confident that God is with him and that God will send an angel before the servant to direct his affairs because he believed in the goodness of God's love towards him. But if the woman, verse 8, is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So friends, let's just pause there and just just let's let's look in gratitude and be encouraged by the growth of Abraham. And let's be, let's be convicted by it maybe too. I think one of the, the weaknesses of the American church is we have such a watered-down version, uh, understanding of what it means to turn to Christ. 
And I think because pastors have such insecurity and such egos, and we're just all competing with each other to have bigger churches, that whenever somebody just says that they're a Christian or confesses Christ, we just add them to the role, and then there's just no emphasis on discipleship and growth, and we're just all okay with giving verbal, verbal affirmation of our belief in God, and there's no pressure that we put on ourselves in our culture to actually grow in Christ. And so uh, here's a question for me and for you is, is, okay, I think I became a Christian around 25 years ago in March of 1989 when I first heard the gospel as a high school senior in El Central California. I think I first heard the gospel then. I'm not sure exactly when the Lord converted me or gave me a new heart, but that's the first time I heard it. And so I have been sort of in the church world hearing the gospel since that time. 1989, 2004, that's 25 years. Am I growing in grace? Am I stronger? Is my faith stronger? Do I know more about his word? Do I have more of a heart for his mission? Am I, am I where I need to be? That's something that every Christian, I just think there's this terrible disease of complacency that grips so many people that we're, you know, we're just okay. We get a bulletin from somewhere. Oh, my dad was a deacon there. Humming, humming, my grandma played the piano somewhere. And we, we just, we're just okay with just kind of going year to year without, without really knowing more of who God is and being more involved in his mission. Friend, don't, don't be like that, right? And don't wear out your leaders that just have to cajole and exhort and admonish you to get off your rear end and do something for the glory of God. Oh, well, nobody called. Don't be the person. Nobody called me. Nobody loves me. Grow up, Christian. Look, we need to love each other. I'm not, I know, I'm going to get some emails on this, but that's all right. Give, give them to me. Just, just give them to me. Like, come on, friends. You need to be pushed out of self-absorption and complacency, many of you. Come on. And you can do it. Abraham was a sorry punk who lied about his wife a couple chapters ago, and now he's a man standing on the promises of God. Say, no, 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 Eliezer, go, man, go. An angel's going to go before you. I am encouraged by the development of Abraham's faith because I want to see it in my life as well and yours. I mean, thank you, Scotty. One amen. All right, let's keep going. Verse 9. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, verse 12, O Lord... God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Verse 14, this is not necessarily how you should do it. Let the young women to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and all who should say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast, that word meaning covenantal, has said steadfast love to my master. Now, again, young men, this is not meant to be a guide, okay? 
But do you see, nevertheless, the gracious disposition of God to even answer this prayer, right? I can remember uh, 1993, I graduated from college in New York, drove down the eastern seaboard, was reporting to Fort Benning as a young lieutenant. I went to a college, a military academy that was mostly 90% men, didn't really, you know, date hardly at all during that time of college. I was, let's just say I was eager for uh, a young lady's attention. I'm just going to put it to you that way. And I'm driving down the eastern seaboard. I'm from California, went to college in New York, had never been to the deep south. And I'm thinking, Lord, it's just like you. I think, Lord, you're going to give me a southern, just a southern peach for a wife. And so as I'm driving down I-95 from New York down to Georgia, I mean, I'm just doing goofy stuff. Again, like I said, hopefully I've grown. But I'm like mystical, you know, like wanting to alliterate things on billboards and spell out a girl's name that I might meet, you know. And just, God, give me any sign, like a snowflake falling on my windshield in summer in North Carolina as I drive through, whatever, just goofy stuff. And so I got here a little earlier than I expected before I could report to Fort Benning on Monday morning. Got here Saturday night, checked into a hotel in Columbus. It was late. And I woke up on Sunday morning, and it was dark when I came in on Saturday night. It was, I woke up Sunday morning, and outside of the window of my hotel room was this little church. I'm not going to mention the hotel or the church, and it was a church. And I thought, it was like the hallelujah chorus. Ah, here's this church. God, you've sent this church to be right outside the window of my hotel room. I'm going to go to that church this morning, and there you have a bride prepared for me. Well, let's just say that I went to this church that morning, and I was the only person in that congregation under the age of 75, and I am not joking. (laughs) The ladies did flock to me, but I think, (laughs) I don't think it was for romantic reasons. And so I was, well, I was, I was discouraged, and uh, the next Sunday, by God's providence, I wandered into Jennifer's home church, and the rest, they say, is history. But aren't we prone to just want God? God, God is nevertheless answering this prayer, this unorthodox prayer of Eleazar. Let's keep reading. Sorry for that little personal aside. Verse 15. But he had finished speaking. Behold, Rebekah who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, so she's a cousin, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. Verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, here's the the sentence he was looking for, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. That was 10 camels. Verse 21. This is kind of a funny little sentence, almost like this creepy little guy off in the distance. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. I mean, if they would have had Facebook in the day, he, he stalked her Facebook profile, basically. I mean, it's kind of funny. Like, what, what is Eliezer doing? Like, hey, okay. A couple things I want us to notice here is that Rebecca obviously was a beautiful young woman. 
But she was no diva. I did a little research on how much camels drink. And the always reliable Wikipedia in the sky (laughs) told me that an average camel that's thirsty in 15 minutes can drink up to 30 gallons of water times 10 camels. Now, let's just not say that they all drank the max or whatever, but maybe that's 300 gallons of water that Rebecca lugged while Creeper Eleazar is checking her out. (laughs) She was no diva. She was a hardy young woman. She was strong. She, she She was a roll up her sleeves type of a woman. She becomes one of the women in the New Testament that commends faith. Young ladies, listen. Your beauty, read 1 Peter 3. In fact, I'm going to do it right now. 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see, listen to this, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Oh, friends, that is a wonderful picture of strong, biblical, Christ-centered femininity. And Sarah, who we read about in chapter 23, is commended there. And now, even though she has passed away, this young, beautiful lady, Rebecca, who is about to be her daughter-in-law, is cut of that same cloth. There's this woman who is strong and hardworking and noble in character and ready to serve. Rebecca and Sarah become wonderful pictures of strong, fierce, Christ-centered femininity. Verse 22, let's keep going. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. Eleazar is worshiping because he knows God is answering his prayer and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love, his covenantal love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me... The Lord has led me in the way. And if there's a sentence that I think is the high point of this chapter, it is that. It is the the quiet providence of God behind the scenes leading Eleazar to success on this mission. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Friends, that, that little sentence there, the Lord has led me, is this beautiful picture that I think is the main point of this passage of the Lord's leading. Eleazar recognized that it was God who was behind all of it and that was in these small moments bringing about his good and ultimately his master's good. 
Listen to these words in the rest of Scripture. Let me just read a few verses that just fill our heart with confidence in the utter sovereignty of God over even the small things in life. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16, 33, in the same chapter, just a few verses later. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So even over the seeming randomness of the tossing of dice or lots, God is ultimately in that. Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew 28, through Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Friends, these past 10 chapters, we've been looking at the grand, huge, 30,000-foot level uh, aspects of God's utter sovereignty over his redemptive plan to bring a son to ultimately point to Christ. But in this chapter, we see God zeroing in even on these small details of life and God working his quiet providence in the life of Eleazar and Abraham and ultimately Rebecca and Isaac. Friends, do you believe not only in the power of a great big God, but the personalness of a father who is there to love you in every aspect of your life? I I think that is an incredibly important thing for us to grasp. God is good and gracious, and he's a father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7. I was chastened as I was reading Eleazar's kind of strange request, you know, like, God, make this girl say this thing. And I'm like, come on, Eleazar, that is not a very theological prayer. I mean, certainly you should have known not to bind God by such circumstances, and you should have just opened yourself up to the utter and complete sovereignty of God. And if you were as informed in biblical theology of the rest of us, you would have realized that that was kind of a ridiculous. But God answered his prayer, didn't he? And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Of which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, friends, I know all the potential ditches that we can fall into taking that verse out of context, as if God is just all of a sudden obligated to give us all of the stuff that we want. We know that's not what Jesus is teaching. But I think people like us in a congregation like Crosspoint aren't prone to falling off into some wicked, heretical, prosperity gospel view of that verse that God's going to give us a Cadillac. But we, because we value the utter sovereignty of God, sometimes miss the fatherly nature of God, and so we end up not asking God anything. We believe great and glorious truths about God, but we don't bring it into our life, and we don't plead with God, God, give me faith like Eleazar, and make my prayers awkward and at times unorthodox, and let my heart not be limited but by my theology, but let my faith increase because of my theology. God 
is not just sovereign, He is our good and gracious Father. Friends, do you see that? I hope you do. Let's keep reading and move along quickly. Rebecca, verse 29, had a brother whose name was Laban. He'll factor big in a few chapters. Ends up being a little bit of a sneaky uncle. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, the, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come on, come in. I see that gold on my sister. Let's do this thing. Oh, blessed of the Lord, why do you, st-? by the way, if you're listening to this by podcast, that little part was not actually in the scripture. Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. So then, verses 34 through 49, is Eliezer basically recounting exactly what we just read. It is Eliezer telling Rebekah's family what happened. And now let's skip down to verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And so then he takes him back. He takes Rebekah back to uh, Isaac and his family. And let's skip ahead to verse 61. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went on his way. Verse 62, now Isaac had returned from Ber Lahoi Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. I mean, can you just feel the romance here? Just God bringing, God working behind the scenes to bring this this union to be. Verse 66, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Friends, what is chapter 24 about? It is about God bringing about his providence through the ordinary and at times awkward and unspectacular obedience of his people. So chapter 23 is about Abraham's hope. The promise of God is ultimately not in this life. It's in the life to come, to be in Christ, to live forever in unending joy is the message of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. And chapter 24 is about how God will not give up on his people. And even in the small things in life, God is superintending the lives of his people for their good and the fulfillment of his promise to them. And friends, all of this is only possible because of what Jesus has done. Doug read it at the beginning for our call to worship, Colossians 1. It's in Christ that all things hold together. It's in him all things consist. It's Jesus and his work on the cross that all human history is marching towards. And it's because of Jesus and only because of Jesus that you and me can have a hope. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross is why we, like Abraham, can have hope. 
And because of Jesus, God is working out our good. Friends, this is not just some sort of moralistic story saying that, oh, God is basically a kind, sort of benevolent grandfather. And friends, he's going to work things out for your good. And behind the scenes, he's going to arrange things like a master puppeteer. No, friends, the sovereignty and goodness and fatherly care of God only applies to those that are trusting in Christ. And are you today? That's the question that rings out from 23 and 24. Our hope in God's steadfast love towards us is only found for those that are trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross, taking on our sin, the punishment for our sin, defeating it, absorbing it, satisfying God's anger against our rebellion, defeating it in resurrection victory, and now commanding all people everywhere in this room and every person on earth to turn away from trusting in themselves and trust in Jesus. Is that where your hope is? Are you trusting in the steadfast love of God that finds its culmination in the cross? Or are you trusting in yourself? I pray that even these two seemingly uneventful narrative chapters, that God would use them to, if you are already a Christian, to renew your hope in God in eternity with Christ forever if you're not a Christian, to lift up your eyes so that you would see and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for these friends that have been, have been attentive and patient as we work through this long text. As we sing a, a song now to respond to you and worship you, I pray, God, that you would lift up our eyes to see Jesus. Lord, if there are Christians in this room who want to come to the table and receive communion and to remember what Jesus has done, Lord, I pray that they would feel welcome to the table. Friend, if you're not a Christian, uh, you're not yet believing in Jesus, you you shouldn't respond by receiving the bread and the cup. We don't want you to proclaim something that you don't yet believe. If you are a Christian, you're welcome to the table during this song. And as we sing this song and then hear this benediction verse, Lord, lift our eyes. Give us hope in Christ for eternity. And let us see and sense and know your fatherly care in every detail of our lives. For the glory of your name, for the good of your people, do these things, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.